Welcome everyone to Seek, Go, Create. This is Tim Winders, your host, coming to you, as always, from the passenger seat of Theo and great conversation today. And uh, let me just go ahead and hit you with what all we're going to be probably talking about. We're going to be discussing the monetary system. We're going to be talking about Bitcoin. We're going to be talking about faith and God. And we're going to be bringing all of that together in one conversation. If that doesn't intrigue you, if that doesn't encourage you to stay on, I'm not sure that anything else will. So welcome to Seek, Go, Create. This is where we redefine success. We bring leadership, business, and ministry all together. I can guarantee you that we'll be doing that today. So uh, let's jump in. Let's get to our, our guest. Today we have Jimmy Song as our guest. And this is kind of what he says he is. I'm going to ask him in a moment what he tells people he does. He's a Bitcoin developer, educator, and entrepreneur. And get this, he's the author of the book, Thank God for Bitcoin. I did just finish reading it. Great read. We're going to do a deep dive into it. Jimmy, welcome to Seek, Go, Create. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on and talking to all those people on Facebook Live and YouTube and everywhere else that you are going to post this on. Yeah, we hope it goes everywhere because I, <laughs> I, I agree this is an important topic. Before I get too far ahead of myself, though, Jimmy, we run into each other. I'm down in Austin. You're up in South Dakota where I'm at right now or somewhere. We bump into each other. I say, man, you look really cool in your cowboy hat. And you go, wow, you live in an RV. And, you know, we chit chat and I say, Jimmy, what do you do? What do you typically tell people? Yeah, it's a hard question because I don't have, you know, your typical job. A lot of our jobs in sort of this economy have uh, very clear and easy to figure out labels like accountant or lawyer or doctor or something like that. I don't have one of those. And I'm sure you feel the same way when you're trying to describe what you do. I have like eight different ways in which I make money, none of which is really dominant. And, uh, you know, I could I could tell you I'm an expert witness in, you know, like, uh, you know, different uh, court cases. I can tell you I'm a consultant. I can tell you I'm an author. I can tell you I lecture sometimes at, at universities. I can tell you that I, uh, I do podcasts and newsletters and I speak at Bitcoin conferences, all of which would be true, but they don't really capture what I do as well as maybe saying that I'm in Bitcoin. And that's that's about it, because that sort of makes it a lot easier for people to be like, okay, I know Bitcoin's kind of this out there thing, and therefore I can't, uh, you know, I can ask more questions about it, but yeah. Um, my wife also has trouble answering that question. What does your husband do? Um, he does something in Bitcoin, you know, and that's, I think about the best description. Uh, I, I do stuff in Bitcoin, lots of different things from coding, like open source projects to, you know, writing books to speaking at, on podcasts like this. Yeah. that And I love the rambling nature of that response because that's really what I perceived when I was doing a bit of research and studying you, listen to you on some podcasts. I jumped into a clubhouse room Gosh, it had to have been six months ago, eight months ago or something. And it was, you know how Clubhouse is. It was one of these super <laughs> weird conversations. You were there, a couple of the people were there, and there was they were having this somebody was trying to compare Bitcoin to the second coming and all this <laughs> weird stuff was <laughs> happening. And I was like going, I need to meet Jimmy Song because he talks about things and thinks about things, not necessarily in the way I do, but I don't think you take things just 
as they're written, as they're stated, as they're brought to us in the in the world we're in. But uh, a couple of quick things to kind of get out of the way. I listened to you on a podcast, saw you somewhere, and supposedly, and for those that can't see, you got a cowboy hat on. And uh, for those that hear your voice that have any background in something spiritual, you you at times sound like someone who's a fairly famous preacher in in <laughs> spiritual circles. So so let's go ahead and bring let's go ahead and get those elephants out of the room real real quick. Is this a black hat or a white hat conversation with uh, Seek Go Create and our listeners? Well, first of all, it is a, uh, it's actually a half breed. If you, uh, you know, for those that are watching the video, I'm, I'm showing my hat. It's, uh, you know, a hat I got at Texas Hatters down in Lockhart, Texas, but it's got a straw top and a beaver pelt uh, sort of bottom. So it's sort of like an all weather hat. Um, it's considered a faux pas to wear a straw hat after Labor Day, kind of like white pants or something like that. So uh, you're supposed to wear a felt hat, but this is a half breed. So, you know, I, I, I do wear that. Um, the, the, you know, famous Christian preacher that you are referring to is, of course, Francis Chan. I do have a remarkable resemblance to the guy. I've been told this um, by a lot of people. And, you know, like you, you know, like you might think it's racist or something that some white guy tells me that. But it's actually like. Lots of Asian people have told me that. In fact, one of the first people to be uh, uh, to tell me that was, uh, at least in the in my industry, was when I was in Hong Kong and I was talking to a couple of ladies from LA, and they were like, "Hey, do you happen to know this Christian guy named Francis Chan?" I'm like, "Yes, you're gonna say that I look like him, right?" And I do, um, especially with the shaved head and everything else. If you look under my cowboy hat, so. Yeah, I, I, I do have some resemblance to um, to that guy. But yeah, th those are some elephants we definitely need to get out of the room. Um, but I, I do wear the hat because, you know, I, 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 I do live in Austin. I, I love the sort of like Wild West sort of era where, you know, it was a lot of people that were going out West to make a life for themselves, uh, to take personal responsibility and I, I believe that's where uh, Bitcoin is at, and that's where we're headed. Um, and it's it's a very exciting time to be in this industry, obviously. And for me as a Christian, I, I think this is a really good opportunity for some ministry. Yeah, I, I and I love, I, I actually got a kick out of the, I think I read it in the book or somewhere you referenced Francis Chan. I said, yeah, that's who exactly who he sounds like. My wife and I are doing a, we're actually doing an online Bible study with Francis Chan right now. So I'm sitting here listening to you and listening to him. And I, and I do agree. It sounds a bit racist. It's like, you know, <laughs> they all look alike. They all sound alike. I don't know if white people are that way too. I, I hate those things, but we can laugh about it because we're mature and we can handle it. But, um, and but I, I really do look like Francis Chan. I, I, Honestly, like my, my wife tells me this. So it's it's kind of and you sound you know. like him. You sound like him some too. So this is what I thought would be funny. Let me just kind of get this out of the way. Mm. I would love to do a mashup and, and here at Seat Go Create, we're willing to host this. I would love to do a mashup of letters to the church. Francis Chan is a guest, and thank God for Bitcoin. Jimmy Song is a guest. Bring y'all two together and let's have that discussion. All together, I'll be facilitating and ask, asking some questions. Don't you think that'd be cool? Oh, I, I would be really down with that. And, you know, th this would be like very meme worthy on Twitter and all sorts of places. And people would be like, wait, 
who's talking here. Yeah, it, I, yep. I, I would take off the cowboy hat, maybe grow out my uh, goatee to more of a beard style that he has and see if people could tell us apart. Yeah, that would be fun. That'd be cool. Two cutting edge items too. Thank God for Bitcoin and letters to the church. So anyway, all right, let's let's get a little more serious. We don't have to get a lot serious. <laughs> there is something that you use to describe yourself that you didn't bring up when I asked what you do, but I, I, I've seen the words Christian libertarian mm -hmm. uh, listed out. And I just want to say that those are two words that I gravitate towards. Mm. I am one that if anyone hangs out with me long enough, I am not a fan of big government. I am mm. not a fan of people telling me what to do. Part, part, of, part of that could be just a little bit of a rebel. Mm. And I am a lot of times pulling for the independent little guy. And, and I go back and study scripture and I see that there was a group 2000 years ago that that's kind of the way they were. Maybe I'm mm. fantasizing that I'm in that group, but um, tell us more about what a Christian libertarian is, because I think that may set the tone for our conversation. Mm, yeah, great question. So uh, Christian libertarian is, uh, a, you know, it's kind of a political label, I suppose, because libertarianism uh, obviously has a particular sort of reputation in the political sphere. Um, I believe that it's uh, completely consistent with scripture. God gives us liberty. He gives us the you know option essentially to follow him or not and that's uh that's for me at the heart of christianity he doesn't uh treat us as automatons and you know forcing us to follow him and saying you you must do this or whatever it's you have a choice and if you want to be with me then you follow me and you do what i say if you don't then you know i'll i'll give you what you want basically um, and that, that, that's a tragedy uh, of uh, human choice is that oftentimes people choose not to follow God. And that's, uh, you know, something that I feel very passionate about is that a lot of people think that they're being free when really they're being enslaved to something else. So libertarianism, I think, uh, as a philosophy is, uh, is really about individual freedom and securing those freedoms. It, it has its basis in natural law, this idea that God gives us these particular rights, right? Like property rights, the right to life, liberty, and property, and the pursuit of happiness, and all, all, those, all those great things. Um, and, and the idea that government shouldn't take away what God gives us. And that's, that's ultimately at the core of what or what I see as Christian libertarian philosophy embodies, um, is this idea that you know, you, you have no right to go take away, um, you know, rights that God gave us. Uh, you know, there, there are sort of like restrictions around that. Obviously, if you're going and taking somebody else's life, then you need to be punished for that because you violated their rights. And, you know, there, there needs to be some authority in order to uh, make that happen and so on. But, you know, like for the most part, it is all about giving people uh, leaving people to have the rights that God's already granted to them. And that that's at the heart of Christian libertarian philosophy, at least as I understand it. Okay. All right. So here I'm going to, I'm going to hit you with a lot of different things. Here's the <laughs> challenge. I think you and I think the same, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to, I'm not going to take the other side. And here's my first question with that. Are we sure people can handle that? I mean, let's look at the last couple of years with all this happened with this, whatever we want to call it, a 
pandemic mm-hmm. or viral, whatever it is. I wonder, I'm actually getting, I kind of bounce around. Sometimes I'm super optimistic and then sometimes <laughs> I could be super pessimistic. And uh, this morning I've got a little bit of both going on. So this is going to be kind of fun. Are we sure people can handle responsibility? Well, absolutely not. I mean, for, for the most part, a lot of people handle it very badly. This is why we we are, you know, creatures of sin and so on, and why we need the redemptive work of Christ. If if we if we don't have God with this freedom, it ends up uh, we we end up being enslaved to sin, and that that's kind of the idea is that we come to it voluntarily. We're not forced into it. If we're forced into it then it's no choice at all. It's, it's not genuine in the least. Uh, and, and part of that, uh, part of exercise of that freedom is in finding what actually works. And what actually works is God, is Christ, is following and changing and uh, turning our lives over to him so that we can be transformed from the inside. Because at our core, we are corrupt, sinful beings. And, and this is where, you know, um, a lot of governments, a lot of uh, political philosophies go astray because they try to reform people from the outside through coercion. Um, And this is what socialism and communism and uh, all sorts of things try to do. And in a sense, what our government is kind of trying to do with us right now is force people into what they perceive as more moral. And that's that doesn't work. you, you will always have rebellion because you're not reforming them from the inside. At, at, at the core of our being is our heart, is our soul. And that doesn't get reformed because you are compliant in whatever it is that you happen to be doing. Um, compliance does not mean that you are a more moral person. It just means that you are afraid of the particular consequences that um, you know, so, somebody might, uh, uh, you know, some authority might impose on you. So for me, um, that that freedom comes with a lot of responsibility. And that responsibility is not something that we can handle. And it is dependence on Christ, it is dependence on God that allows us ultimately to handle that. Um, and that it, it requires reformation from the inside, transformation from the inside, into uh, a creature that God has meant us to be. But without rooting out sin, no, we can't, we absolutely cannot handle it. Um, But trying to handle it through external means, through coercion doesn't work either. And it actually makes us even worse. You know, what jumped to my mind as you were saying that is I I, I jumped to, I don't have the chapter and verse, but in Matthew, the rich young ruler. And and I actually thought about, we're gonna bring money into this because we need to bring (laughs) money into this discussion fairly quickly. We can talk about the monetary system, the Fed, a bunch of cool stuff like that, because everybody loves talking about that stuff. And uh, but what jumped to my mind was the conversation that Jesus had with his disciples after his encounter with the rich young ruler. And and he made a comment, said it is harder for a rich man. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And disciples were shocked, which is very interesting. It tells you where money was as far as stature in that time. And his response says, but with God, all things are possible. And so you responded to me and it kind of jumped to my mind. You said, no, we're not. We can't handle responsibility. We can't handle interaction. We can't handle money. We can't handle material things. We can't handle any of that stuff without God. But so now that we brought money into it, the challenge that I have is that I, I see that in many parts of the world, we've made government God. 
Mm. We've made pieces of government God, and we kind of tried to remove God from the equation. So, all right, Jimmy, this is big question. You address this in the book so well. I think it's one of the most valuable pieces of the book. What is wrong with our current monetary system? Let's go ahead and dive right in. Many people would say, <laughs> oh, yeah, it's fine. It's good. We've got good stuff going on. What is wrong with it? Why is it so messed up? Yeah, um, I, I want to go back to your story with the rich young ruler, because I, I think that sort of like uh, illustrates what 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 was wrong with it at, at the time uh, that Jesus said this. And um, you can go uh, read uh, Makers versus Takers, great book by Jerry Boyer um, that that analyzes that particular story, um, along with a lot of other encounters that Jesus had with uh, you know, rich and poor people in the Bible, um, but that that happened around Judea, right? And um, and if you if you think about what what was happening, this is a rich young ruler, right? It's somebody that's ruling over uh, a particular area, and uh, if you read the context of it, uh, you know it's very strongly implied that this is probably someone of the priestly class, right? Somebody that is up in sort of like the bureaucracy of Jerusalem, if you will. And he was pointing out those people, not specifically, hey, anyone that's rich, uh, it, it, you know, they're going to have a hard time getting into the kingdom of heaven. It's, okay, these people are used to a certain way of, um, you know, society being laid out. They're, they're really what I would call like rent seekers, what the Bible calls busybodies, people that are benefiting from government largesse or, uh, you know, the, the powers that be, if you will. And th those are the people that have sort of the luxury of being able to, you know, think about these things in this particular way. I've, I've obeyed everything since I was a boy, but, you know, like, uh, okay, well then go sell all your wealth, give up all of this stuff that you're talking about, this you know, rent seeking, you know, opportunities that you get because of where you happen to be and wh what place you were born and come follow me, right? Like be, be a participant in, in what I'm trying to build instead of, you know, propping up this, you know, priestly class and uh, the rule of Rome and, uh, you know, the Sanhedrin and everything else. Um, that is very much what the current monetary system is sort of like upholding, right? It, the, the current monetary system is what I call um, a cesspool of theft, corruption, and cronyism. And that was very much the case back in Jerusalem back, back then. Um, and with pretty much every government that's ever existed is that you have theft, you have corruption, you have cronyism. And this, the, this was definitely the case in ancient Israel as well. Uh, during Jesus's time. And this this is what he was condemning was, hey, you know what? These people are doing just horribly unfair things and they, they are getting their riches sort of like very unjustly and so on. And that that was a large part of what he was condemning. Now, what 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 is wrong with the monetary system is essentially that there is a central party that gets to print all of the money. And this is um, uh, many uh, of you that are listening to this probably have an instinct towards this, like, okay, the system kind of seems unfair, but I don't really understand how it's unfair and so on. Well, let me let me spell it out for you. The way the current system works is everything is based on debt. That means um, that new money comes into existence through debt. So for example, at the federal government level, you have a budget of 6 trillion, your tax revenues are 4 trillion. 
you have a budget deficit, $2 trillion. What do you, how, where does the $2 trillion come from? What a lot of people think is, oh, well, you know, they sell bonds and treasuries and uh, the public buys them up and that's it, right? Like the public lends them $2 trillion. There, uh, I can tell you as an investor, there's, there's not that many people that are willing to give up, uh, you know, like their money for a 1.5% interest rate over 10 years, right? Like that's just way too low of a return. Uh, that these treasury bonds are are paying in order to get you know like uh, you know, a 1.5% return that that doesn't make any sense like it, it they they would much rather invest in real estate or the stock market or something like that where you're going to get 5 6 7 8% per year um, so where does that money come from well some foreign central banks will take it but mostly it's printed by the um, federal reserve and this is the central bank of the united states and they are called the lender of last resort for that reason. If uh, you, you try to sell $2 trillion worth of bonds uh, or treasury bonds, but we, what you call treasuries, right? Because they're issued by the treasury. Um, and say like, uh, you know, half a trillion dollars worth gets sold into the market, which is way more than what, what actually gets, gets sold. Where does the rest of the money come from? Well, the treasury buys them. Well, where does the treasury get its money? Well, they print it into existence. It's considered debt, so they just print it into existence. All that, all this money comes into the market, um, and that that's how new money comes into existence is through debt. And this doesn't just happen at the federal level. That's that's just one example, and they are, uh, you know, obviously the most prolific in terms of debt. I think uh, the current budget deficit or the that uh, the national debt is somewhere around $28 trillion, right? That's how much, uh, you know, accumulated debt that they, they've had uh, since, uh, you know, however long. Uh, but the, the rest of it, uh, you know, there, there's way more than that at other levels. So commercial banks, for example, do the same thing with commercial bonds. So when a big company issues, uh, you know, uh, corporate bonds, um, they are bought up by commercial banks, and they also print it out of nothing, right? Like they they buy these uh, corporate bonds with money printed out of nothing, which is why they get sold, even though they return like two percent, right? Again, that's not a very good good investment. Two percent over fifteen years or thirty years or however is not a good investment to anybody, and any investor knows this. Uh, let's go down another level, even at the retail level, uh, when you're going and getting a mortgage. Right, like you're you're getting a mortgage for five hundred thousand dollars over thirty years, um, and it's at three percent. Right, like does that come from somebody else's savings? No, no, it does not. In fact, it always, almost always, comes from the bank printing money on your behalf. So, at every level, it is money printed for the sake of you know the the people that are benefiting they're they're getting access to newly printed money this is what you would call the cantillon effect which is named after an irish uh french economist from 1700 who noticed this with the very, world's very first central bank the bank of england um and as a result uh what what we're doing is uh, the everybody in the U.S. is obviously benefiting from this because if you are, you know, a member of government, you know, obviously you're benefiting because you get to spend money that you don't have. Uh, if you're a corporation, you get to spend money that you don't have. If you're an individual, you get to spend money you don't have. You get to leverage the heck out of the system. So the the science of economics or, or uh, the study of economics is really looking at, okay, here are the scene effects. What are the unseen effects? Are we like, can we really get 
something for nothing, right? Because it feels like no one is being hurt by all of these loans that are being handed out. Well, yes, yes, you are uh, hurting some people. And in fact, these are some of the most poor and most vulnerable people in the world. And this is done through inflation, through monetary expansion, through money dilution. And, and uh, most people think, well, okay, right. That means that whatever I have in my bank account gets diluted. Yes, that is true. And depending on how much of a cash position you have, you are getting diluted and that kind of sucks. But it's way more than that because the dollar is the global settlement currency. So almost all trade um, happens in the dollar. So there's a lot of other people besides the people in the United States that are getting hurt. And in fact, if you go to any other country with uh, you know, inflation problems in their own currency, the currency that they desire the most is the US dollar. And this includes places like Nigeria and Turkey and Lebanon, which are going through uh, severe inflation at the moment, but also places like uh, Venezuela and North Korea, right? And Zimbabwe, places that you would never expect. Um, in, the, in the North Korean black markets, the US dollar is the number one currency that is desired by every black market merchant. And it is those people that are being stolen from. Because whenever you expand the money supply, their dollar purchasing power goes down. And in fact, this is not just theoretical. This is happening right now. We have reports coming out of North Korea talking about all of those people that are there complaining about how prices have doubled in the last eight months, right? Prices have just literally doubled for everything. So whatever money that they kept in dollars, it's getting diluted. So your stimmy checks, all your PPP loans, everything that you are benefiting from through government largesse, it ultimately hurts people. And it's usually people that can't fight back. It's the orphans in North Korea, the black market merchants in North Korea. It's the people in Venezuela. It's the people in Zimbabwe. It's people that are using the dollar as their store of value that we are stealing from. That is horribly unjust, and that is what is wrong with the current monetary system. It benefits a few at the expense of the many, and this was very much the case back in Jesus's time. It's also the case right now. So here's the deal, then. So this is again. I'm going to keep. I'm going to keep hitting away at this because mm. I agree. But this is what grieves me. Mm. It doesn't seem as if anyone cares. <laughs> I, I hate to say that. I mean, I, I'm sitting here listening, going, and I'm digging this, hoping hoping that people aren't just tuning out because, oh my gosh, I thought they were going to tell me how I can make a boatload of money with Bitcoin or whatever. <laughs> and they're talking about the monetary system that has been a problem for 2,000, 4,000, 6,000 years. So, I mean, the, the, the big question here, Jimmy, is if it hasn't changed in 2,000 years, we're going to get to Bitcoin in just a moment. Why would we, in our spiritual or natural wisdom that we have, think that anything's going to change in the next 20, 30, 50 years because it hasn't in 2,000 years? And listen, we, I know we could go through. You did a pretty good job of this in the book. You know, we could look at the first national bank here in the U.S. We could look at the early 1800s, the second national bank. We could look at, you know, the, the creature from, uh, you know, Jekyll Island in, you know, 1913. We could look at Bretton Woods. We could look at 1970. We could look at all that stuff. But has anything really changed, and do people really care? That is what grieves me. Help me out here. 
<laughs> well, people do care and it, they, they typically care when you get, when it's a little bit too late, right? Like when you're mm -hmm. entering hyperinflation and so on. And there have been the, the number of hyperinflation episodes around the world have exploded since when, you know, basically world war one, uh, when the first central banks were really like kind of in operation and so on. Um, so, you know, people do care, um, much like they care about taxes and, uh, you know, almost every revolution in history can be traced back to too much taxes in one shape, uh, way, shape, or form, and that that's happened all throughout history, right? And uh, and inflation is a form of a tax, except it's a very tricky one. It's very difficult to understand how it's a tax that wealth is actually being stolen away from you. Uh, but once you understand it, it's something that you you can kind of grasp and say, oh wow, this this is a tax and. People are, you know, have some level of self-interest. So for that reason, I think people definitely do end up caring. Um, but yeah, the the sort of like mechanics of hyperinflation and inflation and so on have gotten much worse over time. Um, so it used to be back in Jesus's day, uh, you know, you you had a denarius, right? Like it, it's a silver coin worth about a day's wage and so on. It had you know, uh, 3.8 grams of gold, something, something like that. It was a tiny coin. I, I have one in my office. Um, but, uh, but, you know, at, over time, as Roman emperors wanted to dilute the currency and manipulate the monetary supply, they, they diluted the denarius. And a couple hundred years after Jesus, you know, they're, they're, by, by the reign of Claudius II, who was emperor for a very short time, like a couple of years or something like that, like, it basically had no silver at all. And you couldn't, you couldn't, uh, like people stopped taking it. They started going to harder money and so on. It, it took like 200 years for things to dilute that much. These days, like, uh, you know, contrast that to something like the Weimar Republic in Germany and hyperinflation happened way faster because they just would print more bills, right? Like it, it would continuously, they, they literally had, uh, you know, people printing money every day and it would get, the denominations would get larger and larger instead of this whole process in Roman times where they had to collect all the coins, melt them all and dilute it a little bit and print new ones. And that was a labor intensive process. Um, even printing money in the Weimar Republic was a labor intensive process. Now it's all digital. <laughs> they literally just press a button and you get an extra trillion dollars or... I guess they can make a trillion dollar coin and give it to the treasury or something, but it's all bookkeeping like nonsense, right? Like it's a, it's an accounting trick essentially, but it, it's way faster and way worse. Um, the reason for the hope that we have is uh, of course Christ. But one, one of the things that we have now is this decentralized form of money where you can't get diluted, uh, where, where this uh, expansion of the monetary supply doesn't benefit a privileged few, uh, the, the, you know, the rich young ruler or the, the people in power or people, people like that. Um, instead, it, you, you can have sovereignty over your money. And that, that's, that's where it gets really exciting because you can opt out of the system without like being subject to this horrible um, injustice that is the fiat monetary system, which you know, hurts people all around the world. Mm. All right. So much there. You helped me out a little bit, but the last thing you said triggered me. <laughs> <laughs> 
because it was something that I wrote down and I've, I've done a lot of study mm-hmm. related to the kingdom of God mm-hmm. and the world system, which is what I call the Babylonian system. So just allow mm-hmm. me to call it Babylon kingdom. Okay. Mm. And you just referenced that we have the ability to opt out of this world system. And one of the things that I wrestle with as a business person, as a follower of Christ, is how, and I mean, I look back at, you know, Jesus and his disciples, they, they still operated underneath the Roman Empire. You know, we can kind of fast forward to Paul and, you know, he used the Roman roads to spread the gospel, which was pretty awesome. Mm. And and so I, in my head, try to marry and bring together that Babylon world system Mm. and the kingdom of God. And you just said that we could opt out of the system. And I believe one of the underlying ways we could do that is let's thank God for Bitcoin, the Mm. decentralized currency, and also Tell us more about that. And I, I may want to circle mm-hmm. back because there's a lot that's going on here that we need to define, like rent seekers mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> you know, self-sovereignty, some words that, mm-hmm. also, that might make some of our Christ followers nervous when we start using mm-hmm. words like sovereignty. They kind of get weird mm-hmm. with some of that. But uh, mm-hmm. Jimmy, he- help me out here. Opting out of the system, mm-hmm. is that really possible? Because a lot of people are kind of, they got one leg in and they want to have a leg out, but they can't. Yeah, so you you can you you can opt out of the current monetary system. Again, it is a cesspool of theft, corruption, and cronyism, um, much, much in the same way that you know the priestly class in uh, in Jerusalem were very much in that realm. So um, the way you opt out is by not using the money, right? The 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 money that is used in the current system is used as a way means of control. So, um, you know, if you look at a lot of government legisla- legislation, for example, they have a financial component to them. They basically say, okay, if you are a money transmitter and you do these things that, and you don't check for these things, then we're going to punish you, the money transmitter, instead of the actual person that did the evil deed or something to that effect. Um, it, it's a way to control everything so that you sort of lock down particular behaviors. Um, I don't think I, I don't think that's biblical. <laughs> I don't think that's good. I don't I, I, I think that's actually quite evil because, you know, like it, it might sound fine. OK, well, you know, the government is using that ability to stop child pornographers and drug uh, pushers or something like that. And that you might agree with. But, uh, you know, what, what if they started saying stuff like Hey, uh, we want to persecute Christians, right? Like, which they do in many countries, right? Like, th- this is a reality, uh, not uh, not in America, at least not yet, but in many parts of the world. If you're a Christian, um, you are going to get persecuted. They might take away your money, they might take away your property, and things like that. The, uh, to put someone else in authority over your money um, makes you essentially their servant, right? Uh, debtor or servant to the lender. All money in the, is dead in a fiat monetary system. So you end up being enslaved to whoever has that debt. And this is often the banks and they are controlled by, um, by the government and so on. So being able to opt out is an important feature, um, not just for uh, you know this ability to sort of like not be subject to the government, but because it gives you personal freedom. It, it means that 
you can use the money in a way you find uh, you find moral and just and right instead of whatever the government finds moral and just and right. Um, and we we've seen this all over the world. Like you know, I work with uh, Alex Gladstein of the Human Rights Foundation. He's the chief strategy officer, and we wrote another book called the Little Bitcoin Book. And this is something that we highlighted all over the world. Is you know, as soon as you have a human rights organization that's pissing off some government. The first thing that the government does is they shut down the bank accounts, right? Like they're like, okay, well, you you want, you know, uh, you know, the right to vote or something. Um, we're gonna take away your bank account, right? Like you you want the right to do X, Y, or Z. Well, we'll take it away. And and as soon as they do that, you know, the the organization becomes impotent, all right? Like, uh, and they do that for the leaders of that movement or whatever. Um, you you end up subject to the morals of the government that you happen to be in, um, and they they can enforce whatever it is. Now, if you happen to align exactly with whatever your government uh, you know says is good, then I guess good for you. Um, you know, look, but as soon as you disagree, um, this becomes a problem in the monetary system. This ability to opt out means that you don't have to be subject to that. You can have your own conscience. You could you could just follow God instead of following you know, uh, whatever the government dictates, say, you know, the, the, a big sort of like controversy right now in Christian circles is, you know, vaccines and masks. And a lot of it is, okay, well, government is very much trying to get people to wear lots of masks and, you know, uh, get everyone vaccinated. And they're using everything within their power to do that. Now, you can, uh, you can have different opinions within the Christian circles about that particular issue. But ultimately, like, shouldn't each person follow their conscience, right? Like not, not do whatever it is that the government happens to say is right. Um, you know, that that's financial coercion. And I, I, I believe that to be a very evil thing. And the ability to opt out of that financial coercion is what we're saying you have the ability to do by opting into a decentralized, you know, non-authoritarian currency. Yeah, and one of the things, I mean, that that actually you go you go right to a point that I jotted a note down. Mm-hmm. You know, you're talking about how does someone opt out if they work for a company that has over a hundred employees with mm-hmm. mandates and all in place? Mm-hmm. And and one of the things I wrote here in my notes, most people are ignorant about money in the system of government. Look how they cave to mandates and government reach in the last two years. Mm-hmm. And and I really pulled a quote from your book, thank God for Bitcoin. And so I'm going to kind of mention this quote, and then maybe you could expand on it a little bit more. You basically brought up that growing wealth inequality attracts people to political philosophies that sacrifice individual rights for a collective vision. That's a direct quote. I don't have the page and chapter, but anyway, that's, that's from your book. And so, I mean, what we're talking about, and then this is kind of what goes to my, when I kind of get less optimistic about the future, is looking at what's happened with, um, and I don't, I don't necessarily want to get into this. To me, it's just indicative, mm-hmm. and it's a great example. Mask, no mask. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, get a shot, don't get a shot. I can't even really call it a vaccine. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you know, uh, you don't work if you don't get this, and mm-hmm. and those things are really bothersome for me. So, so all of that brings us up to now. One of the things we haven't done yet. Because I want to kind of get into 2009, what happened in the early part of 2009 and how things shifted and changed. 
But before we do that, I think you need to discuss a little bit, because we haven't specifically mentioned the term fiat money. Mm. I think we need to let, I think you need to go a little bit, and you could jump on Mm -hmm. some of the things I said earlier if you want to, but tell us what fiat money is, why it's a problem, and then we're going to ease into what happened in early 2009 from the person that we, maybe you know who it is, I don't know that we know who it is, <laughs> that invented or came up with or wrote this white paper that's basically math called Bitcoin. So fiat, what is it? What's the problem? Well, well fiat is Latin for let there be. So if you read like the Latin Vulgate or something like that, which is a Latin version of the Bible, um, the first uh, you know sentence uh, in the Bible is fiat lux, right? Like that's what God said, let there be light, right? Um, so it, it's this act of creation and that, that that's what it's supposed to invoke. Um, now God can create because God is all powerful and, all, uh, and so on. Uh, but when, you know, government just sort of creates out of nothing, it, it stays kind of nothing, right? Like God has the ability to create something real because he is God. But when it's government, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, but that, that, that's where the term comes from. And it, it comes from the fact that um, money is no longer backed by anything. It used to be backed by gold. Um, and this was the case from about 1870 to 1910. When the entire world was what was uh, what was under what we would call the gold standard, um, so every national currency was convertible to gold. So in the United States, twenty dollars and sixty-seven cents got you one ounce of gold. You can turn it in at any time and get one ounce of gold for twenty dollars and sixty-seven cents at any bank. That was the idea: is that these were representations of the gold that was actually held at, at your bank, and that was the case in every country. So. Foreign exchange, all that was very easy because everyone was on the gold standard. You just do math, right? Like multiply by one, divide by the other, whatever. And you have um, you you have the you know amount of currency and you didn't have these complex FX markets and so on. Um, what changed was, uh, what, what really brought about like the big changes uh, was uh, World War I and World War II. So both wars were absolutely completely devastating to the world, as we all know. Um, but part of it was that like nobody that saw the beginning of World War I thought that it would last as long as it did because it was the heir to the Austro-Hungarian Empire getting murdered by a Serbian separatist. Okay, it's a regional conflict in the Balkans. You know, they'll 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 sort it out. It'll be a six-week war and it'll be over. That's what everyone thought. Um, what they didn't take into account was the fact that essentially everyone had a central bank at that time, and uh, and because they had a central bank, they could print money whenever they needed it. Previous to that, every government that went to war had to finance the war, right? Or like pay for the war through savings. So you ha- war is very expensive. You have to you know, buy weapons, you have to hire soldiers, you have to have all sorts of logistics and you bring down like the production level of everything else in your economy. So you're not being uh, able to uh, export as much and you don't make as much uh, tax revenue. And there, there's all sorts of ways in which it becomes very, very expensive. So, um, you know, usually like, uh, you know, wars would end when one, one country would run out of money or was getting close to run out of money, at which point they would go sue for peace and that would be it. Fiat money changed all that because 
with the central bank's ability to print money, whenever you needed weapons, you just printed more money. Screw everybody else that had uh, had that that was using the money, and this is where you get into hyperinflation scenarios and so on. Essentially, what uh, what that amounts to is stealing resources from your population, everyone that's using that money, um, and that's what all of the governments in World War One and World War Two were able to do. Is instead of suing for peace because you ran out of money. Well, you don't run out of money when you're using fiat money until you take all of the resources of your entire population. And in fact, like if you remember the ending of World War II, it wasn't because, uh, you know, like Germany ran out of money necessary. They literally ran out of people, right? Like they, they didn't have anybody between the ages of 16 to like 70, like that were male that were left to be able to shoot guns and drive tanks or, or, or whatever. They literally just kind of ran out of people. They ran out of every resource that they, they, they could have possibly had. And they, that, that was the ultimate humiliation of, uh, of World War II. And it, it just like drained everybody of money. Um, that's what fiat money allows uh, you know, the, the people in control to do. And that, that's why it is just so pernicious. And that's essentially what fiat money is. It's not backed by anything. Um, and it was nominally backed by gold up all the way up until 1971. But after that, uh, when Nixon temporarily suspended the convertibility to gold 50 years ago, um, it's now basically, they're never going to allow convertibility again. It means that like the money gets printed and it, uh, value gets stolen um, you know, from everybody that else that holds the dollar. Um, now, it gets somewhat stolen from us. Whatever bank account balance that you have, it's, uh, it's being diluted every time the Fed expands the monetary supply. But it's mostly being stolen from a lot of people around the world, right? Like if you think about stuff like trade deficits or something like that, where you know, we, we send China like $200 billion worth of, uh, you know, treasuries that we just printed out of thin air, and they send us $200 billion worth of goods. Well, who, who's making out well there, right? Like, you're, you're not, you're not giving them anything They're You're just sort of issuing debt, and they give you goods. It's uh, in any other era, that would be called tribute or something. Um, so ultimately, what fiat money is, is uh, money created out of nothing that allows uh, the resource control of everybody that's using that currency. And we have the ability to opt out by opting out of the fiat monetary system. And so one of the things I want to bring up in, in your book, uh, Thank God for Bitcoin, you spend a lot of time addressing the morality or the Im immorality of the current system and I do want to say this, this, this is something I think is very important for people listening in. You bring in a ton of scripture into this book. And, and, I, and I want to tell you, Jimmy, you know, I've got a background, got some Bible training, studied the word for a long time. I'm still a business guy, but I sometimes get uncomfortable when people bring scripture into business books, not because I don't think they go together. But I think what some people do is they bring it in to make their point. So I'm early on reading this book and I see a scripture and I'm looking at it as a fine tooth cone going, OK, I got to I got to check Jimmy here to make sure that he's not misusing some scripture because we know some of our brothers and sisters mm -hmm. do that. I want to tell you that everything that I saw was dead on right in line with what the points were bringing out. So. 
seems to me like the Holy Spirit might have been helping you write this book with some other people. I know it was a group effort, but all of that was really cool. And I think you make a great case of the immorality of the system. Let's don't go into a lot more there. We could. I think we could really do that. But I want some hope. I want some encouragement. I want to give some people listening some action steps if possible. Uh, in 2009, something happened that that in the book you say, thank God for what happened. Mm-hmm. And um, so did God give us Bitcoin? <laughs> well, God gives us everything. So in, in, in that sense, I think uh, you, you can say God gave us Bitcoin, just like God gave us the internet and cell phones and everything else. Um, it, the, the thing that led to sort of that genesis, uh, right, like literally the first block of the Bitcoin blockchain is called the Genesis block, um, sort of like a little bit of a biblical reference there. Uh, we don't know who Satoshi is, but uh, we do know that Satoshi Nakamoto, the inventor of Bitcoin, was part of the cypherpunk mailing list. And if you don't know about the cypherpunks, it goes all the way back to like 1992. This was in the very early days of the internet and it was a mailing list. And, you know, there weren't that many people on the internet in 1992. Uh, But there, there were a bunch of people that were, you know, like focused on privacy and focused on uh, sort of getting out from sort of the authoritarian um, fiat control that, that that we know of. You can go read the Cypherpunk Manifesto, um, which I think Timothy C. May wrote uh, back in 1993, and just sort of get a flavor for what they were trying to achieve. But basically what they were trying to achieve was privacy, right? Um, they, they, they thought that privacy was a right, not like a nice to have. Um, and this uh, this idea of a money that's outside the current system, that's digital, that's private, and and, and so on. And uh, and there were many sort of like little predecessors to Bitcoin. There was something called Chaomi and Cash um, that was uh, you know sparked by the discovery of uh, public key cryptography back in 1976. Um, you know, Chaomi and Cash came along in like 1982 in, in a paper. Um, David Chaum actually ended up doing a, a company during the dot com boom that allow for something like that, which was a very private form of, uh, of monetary transfer. Uh, unfortunately, credit cards took over. So he, you know, his company went bankrupt. Um, it, it was called DigiCash. Uh, but there, there was uh, also um, something uh, called B-Money that uh, another researcher named Wei Dai, uh, another cypherpunk that was uh, that was trying to come up with. And that, that, that came up with this idea of a distributed ledger. Um, there was also something called uh, proof of work, which was pioneered by Adam Back, um, and all that all that was sort of like these were all predecessors and bits and pieces that were available. Um, and you know, proof of work paper I think was written in two thousand four. Um, two thousand eight. Uh, well, it, we have some evidence that Satoshi Nakamoto worked on it for a few years. So probably like two thousand six, two thousand seven. Satoshi Nakamoto came up with, okay, let's combine all of these things and we can finally have decentralized money. And that's what was released to the world in 2009. Um, And it was a very fortuitous time because of course, like a few months before that we had, you know, the TARP bailouts and uh, what people around the world called the great financial crisis. It was a, it it was a significant economic event. um, And at least for me, it was like the first moment I realized, okay, wait, where, where's this money coming from? Because it's literally like $700 billion, which 
sounds quaint now, right? Like 700 billion, that's nothing. Uh, but back then, uh, it, that was just such a shocking number because every number before that, like, was much less than 700 billion, right? Like, I, I lived in Boston at the time, and I remember, like, the big dig, and that, like, just seeming like an insane number. The big dig was this infrastructure project in Boston, if you if you live there. And, you know, it was like the price tag was $2 billion, and they were saying, oh, you know what? Like, it ended up costing $20 billion. I was like, $20 billion? That's, like, an insane amount of money. Of course, $20 mil billion sounds completely like reasonable now right like that's like okay that's nothing uh but you know like night 2008 that that tarp bailout the great financial crisis all of the quantitative easing which um and of course the iraq war which ran into the trillions of dollars like all of that um sort of like preceded the uh, you know uh bitcoin and when it when it was released in the genesis block is you know uh the the headline for uh, the Times, uh, you know, uh, newspaper in London, uh, January 3rd, 2009, you know, um, Chancellor on the brink of second bailouts, uh, something, something to that effect. So it really was sort of like a response to this uh, sort of excessively controlling, very, uh, you know, like unfair system of fiat money. Um, and that, that ultimately led to it becoming much more popular, um, particularly in 2011 after WikiLeaks um, adopted it because PayPal had shut down their bank account or their PayPal account for donations. So they were like, okay, we have no way of receiving donations so we can expose government corruption. Uh, so they, they were one of the first ones that put Bitcoin on the map. And um, you can kind of get an idea of why Bitcoin was significant just through that because they were able to receive donations to expose sort of government corruption and kind of craziness that was going on uh, very early on uh, because no other financial services provider would would give them the time of day because, you know, the government was putting pressure on everybody to not service them. Yeah. And, and all of that, I mean, I don't think I recall, I mean, my first, mm -hmm. I dipped my toes into Bitcoin cryptocurrency in 2017, which some would say that's late to the game. Some now would say it's early. But when were you first exposed? When was your first interaction with all that was going on? You kind of you were in those circles. Seems like you've been around those circles for a long time. Yeah. So it's been a little over 10 years for me. So I, I got into it back in 2011 when I um, when I saw an article on Slashdot, which is the tech site. So I've been a just background. I've been a, I've been a programmer all my life, and I've been working profession. I, I've been working at that point. It was a lot easier back then to say what I was, right? Because I'm I'm a programmer. I'm a coder. Uh, that that's what I was. So I, I read a lot of like technical news and so on. So, um, you know, there there was a technical news website called Slashdot, and in February of 2011, there was a story in there that I had nothing, I, I knew nothing about. And those stories are very rare, right? Like, you know, at least something about every every single story that's going through uh, the tech stuff. So I, I paid attention to it. And the title of the story, it was, Bitcoin has reached dollar parity. And I was like, what does that mean? I, how can something reach dollar parity? I, I couldn't even grok that sentence or like parse that sentence, right? Like, what what is this thing? So I looked into it, found out it's a currency and dollar parity meant that it had finally reached $1. And I was like, okay. So um, I started investigating it and learning about it and 
um, that's how I got into it. And that, that, that sort of started me down the path of open source contribution to Bitcoin stuff, um, you know, teaching other developers about Bitcoin and like writing books about Bitcoin. My first book, book by the way, is a complete programmer's book and uh, it's by O'Reilly. It's called Programming Bitcoin and it's really for programmers. Um, you know, the other two books I've written are uh, much more to a general audience. Um, but that that's that's where I learned about it. And that's where that's those are the circles that I've uh, sort of traveled in. So let's fast forward a little bit. I'm kind of trying to watch our time. I think we may have a hard stop here in just a few minutes, which is uh, unfortunate because I would love to kind of keep plowing into this. Well, if, um, if you have a hard stop, that's fine, but I can go for a little Oh, longer. if you can go, then we're in great shape here. So okay. here's the... Um, here's it's it's been such an interesting cycle i want to share this Mm. in that i was spending a lot of quiet time i was actually in a bible school in the mountains of colorado in 2016-17 and just kind of looking out at the landscape of what's going on in the world i don't know that i mean i actually did have a lot of understanding about monetary policies that you brought up we discussed here um, didn't have a lot of the under the hood of what was going on with, uh, you know, with Bitcoin and things like that. But, uh, you know, I could see some things and I literally felt as if the Lord said, I need you to understand a little bit more about this. And the mm-hmm. only way you can do that is to participate. And so I went through the process and I'm an engineer from Georgia Tech. I should know <laughs> how to do some of this stuff. It was not easy to just go get me some Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> this is 2017. And what was it? I don't know. I don't even want to go into what it was back then. And then I'll even bring this to, to today. We were at a restaurant up here in uh, Spearfish, South Dakota this last week. And I paid with this credit card that uh, <laughs> that has the symbol on it. And the waiter was a young guy. I could tell he thought I was paying with Bitcoin, mm-hmm. which I wasn't. It's just I get some rewards and I get paid in Bitcoin from those rewards. You're probably familiar with some of that. Mm-hmm. But but so so let's fast forward. Let's come up to today and let's help people that might just now be getting on board. Maybe they know a lot. Maybe they don't. But, Jimmy, I, I at times have difficulty applying all of this discussion to what does the average guy do today? Mm. So, and listen, I highly recommend they get your book so they have some understanding, but there are a lot of people that they don't want to get deep into the code. I, I, mm-hmm. I stumbled on one of your articles and truthfully, I just backed away from the computer <laughs> and I just kind of washed my hands of it. I was like, you know, Pontius pilot. I go, I don't even want to know all that stuff about, mm. you know, is, is something going on with the, uh, something that happened in February of 2009 with someone who had Bitcoin or they transacting 10 Bitcoin today. Anyway, all of that. Mm. What does average Joe need to do? today we're recording in late 2001 people might be listening in 2022 or whenever because there's some people that are spiritually they're feeling nudged to do Mm. something they're feeling nudged to get out from underneath this thumb of control Mm -hmm. the word we used earlier self-sovereignty they kind of like it they don't understand it jimmy what do people need to do yeah um so as a christian i think the first thing that you need to do is get out of debt because debt is uh, it, 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 it is evil in so many different at, at so many different levels. Um, I, I think it's very clear from Proverbs: debtor is servant to the lender. 
most of us live lives where we are serving, servicing our dead and not serving God. Um, and I include many churches in this, many, many organizations in this. They are serving money rather than God. And that's going to be a hard word for a lot of people to hear because they have to rethink all of their life choices. Most of us have a mortgage, including me. I'm going to have to go figure out what to do with my mortgage. And uh, and if you think about it- I have, a, everyone... I have a clue for you. You ready? Here's your clue right behind me here. RV, <laughs> be mobile, nomad, no mortgage here, Jimmy. Maybe I need to give you a little bit of guidance there, huh? Yeah, yeah, I, I could definitely use that. Um, but yeah, there, there's definitely uh, a spiritual aspect of monetary debt that we really need to wrestle deeply with and figure out what to do with. Because not only does it enslave us, but it is a horribly unjust system. We talked earlier about what it does to people in North Korea, in Zimbabwe, in Venezuela, in Turkey, in Nigeria, in Lebanon. All these people around the world are suffering because of your excess, right? The mortgage that you're taking out is essentially diluting their savings. Um, and you may not think of it that way because you don't really understand money. Now that you know, you, you have to do something about it. And that's something that you really have to think deeply about. Once you're out of debt, and this is not going to be easy for a lot of people to get out of debt, period, because they are chained to their jobs. They, they have a certain level of lifestyle that they're uh, sort of accustomed to because of the access that debt gives them, right? They're able to buy things now and be as you sow, so you can get what you want later. And any parent can tell you this is much better for a child's character to make them save up to get the toy that they want than, the, than to like sort of give them the toy and make them do stuff later. That's not how character is built. This is not how God designed the world. So sowing and reaping, that means you can save. And we have a great savings technology in Bitcoin. So for, uh, so my, my recommendation would be get out of debt, right? Financially, the, the, this affects so many more things than you think. We are enslaved to our debt. I, I, I still remember like my college fellowship, um, you know, there were all these people on fire for God. They were saying, you know, I'm going to be a missionary. I'm going to go into ministry. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go do that. And this is, a, and I, I look back and see what happened to all those people. They ended up getting some sort of job. They're stuck to it. They get a mortgage, they have a car payment, they end up essentially being enslaved to that debt. They haven't been able to, I mean, like maybe they tie to their church, great for them, but ultimately the passion that God gave them died be, uh, you know, because of debt, right? Uh, it, it, it pours water over this fire that God, God set on our hearts. So get rid of that. Right. Like seriously, the, the, and you know, I, I know Dave Ramsey is not a big fan of Bitcoin, but I, I agree with him that that is a, a, a pernicious influence on, on our lives and it corrupts our souls way more than we think. Um, and in a sense, as soon as you have that, you're serving them. Yeah. One, I want to pause you one second though, mm -hmm. because this is interesting. I look back on our business career and mm. in 2008, we owned a lot of real estate. We had companies and, mm -hmm. you know, we don't, I don't have to tell the rest of the story there, but to me, 
debt not only was such a challenge with my decision making, with how I heard from God, with how I perceived God, mm. because it, it was impacting me in the way I made decisions. But to me, I think it ate away at my soul. I mm. think it literally damaged me at the soul level when month to month to month we were trying to service that. I only wanted to pause there now. Keep going. I totally am in agreement with that. Let's keep going. Yeah, and that that is like just horribly corrupting to our souls, right? Like it, you're you're servant to the lender. You are serving money, right? Like, and that is something that Jesus very clearly wrote about or talked about, right? Like, and and the gospels tell us very clearly, okay, you can serve only one master. You can't serve both God and money. Um, and if you are in a job where all, you know, you're constantly servicing debt and, and so on, well, then you are serving money and you need to come to grips with that as a Christian and understand if you want to serve God, you need to get rid of this debt so that you can serve God. Now, how do you do that? It's, uh, it's going to be difficult. You're going to have to cut back on your lifestyle. You're going to probably have to cut back on a lot of uh, things that you're used to. Uh, but in a sense, I, I think that's a purifying thing. Like uh, you're you're able to do this so you can go serve God. That you know, I, I can't think of a more uh, worthy endeavor than trying to serve God by getting rid of your debt because you're you're switching from one master to the other. Now, once you're out of debt, you can save in Bitcoin, and th this is uh, this is the savings technology aspect of Bitcoin that I think a lot of people miss. Um, most people think of it as a speculative instrument. Now, now I can, you know, if it doubles, now I can go spend money on this or that or whatever. And they, they think of it as sort of like a financial play thing. I would submit to you that that's very much a fiat mentality. That's, uh, that's very much, uh, you know, we, we've been conditioned to think that way because of the current monetary system where nothing stores value. They want you to constantly spend it and be sort of enslaved to the system. So instead, you know, like they, they point you towards, you know, these op opportunities and whatever, where you're essentially making money for doing nothing. And this is, by the way, um, the definition of a rent seeker is somebody that gets to tax a transaction without providing any value. So think of a, a typical government bureaucrat or whatever. Uh, but in many ways, this is kind of what a lot of people are doing with quote unquote investing. It's okay. Well, if I buy GameStop right now and it pumps, uh, you know, like 200% and I, I make money, well then, you know, I, I've made out and, you know, like screw the people that, that didn't. Uh, but you know, like I, I'm able to, uh, you know, have more money for doing other things. I think that's literally decivilizing. That is literally doing something uh, you're you're putting capital towards things that are not adding value, right? Like that 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 are just pumping, right? Like there's a company earlier last year, I think it was uh, Hertz, bankrupt company, and people were pumping it because okay, well I can make money on this. Well, yeah, you might make money, but you're not putting cap like your role as somebody that is investing is supposed to be allocating capital to things that will build things that are useful for civilization. If you're doing it just for the pump. Well, then it's going, the money's not going towards things that deserve it or that will build civilization. It's going towards sort of schemes and ultimately those decivilize, they, they break down civilization. Um, and, you know, like in any sort of hyperinflating economy, that sort of behavior is very common. Um, you can read about the Weimar Republic. There's a book called When Money Dies, 
Um, it, it talks about very, uh, very much stuff like this. So Bitcoin gives you this ability to save. And that is a critical part of you know, being able to plan for the future. If you have the ability to save, it gives you a lot more options to be able to do what you want to do. This is the nature of liberty. And if you want to be free of uh, sort of like the shackles of your job or you know, wh whatever obligations um, that are imposed on you by debt, um, saving is a great way to do it. And instead, you could be shackled to Christ, right? Be yoked with Christ and do what he wants you to do. And, I, and that, that's my prayer for all of your listeners is that I think we have a destiny, right? We, we have things that God wants us to do that, that, that are wonderful and amazing and will fulfill everything that we've ever wanted. But instead, we service debt. We service money. And we end up not being able to get the great things that God wants for us. He wants to bless us so badly, but we're not open to it because we're servicing debt and we're, we're having to do all these things that, you know, all, ultimately aren't good for us. Um, by saving, by, by, you know, uh, having some freedom, giving us that space to follow God, you know, like that, that, that makes all the difference. And I think as Christians, that's where we need to go. Um, now, practically speaking, I think this, this was your original question. If you want to go buy Bitcoin, there are like three very easy ways to do it. You can go download cash app for your phone. It is literally an app like Venmo where you can transfer money back and forth, but it also has the option of being able to buy Bitcoin. There's a little Bitcoin symbol at the bottom. You click on it. Um, you enter your debit card and you can buy it and you're, you're, you, you have exposure to Bitcoin. There, there are more, more levels to that thing, but that, that, that at least gives, gives you a start. Another one is River Financial. Um, you can go to their, uh, their website and again, entering in your bank account information, you could go get exposure to Bitcoin that way. And the third is Swan Bitcoin, very similar. They, they're, they're all companies that are very much focused on Bitcoin only. And I, I specifically say that because I've been in this space for 10 years. All of these altcoins come and go. They are very much like fiat money um, and they're enslaving in the same way that fiat money is. Bitcoin is the one that's actually different as a Christian. You need to, you need to look at Bitcoin and not all the other stuff, which is, uh, it's, it's kind of like being like, oh, okay, well, I'm into religion, um, I'm I'm into Christ, but I'm also into Allah and Buddha and all these other people. Like that's that's what all coining is. So, <laughs> don't do it. Let's go with Bitcoin, and it's 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 going to be a lot easier for you to uh, save um, and whatever extra money uh, after you're out of debt. Extra money you might have that that's where you can save, and you're you're free to free to follow God, right? If He tells you to go to Timbuktu, you can, right? Like instead of Oh, I can't because I got a mortgage and I got this car. I like, or you know, if you if God's calling you to, you know, like homeschool your kids. Uh, well, I can't. Well, now you can, right? Like the it, it removes the excuses that you might have as a result of being a slave to money. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's good. I I I I really would have loved to dove into some of the issues with other things outside of Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> Ethereum and other things like that. I think we're going to hold off on that. I think that's another topic mm -hmm. for another day. Mm -hmm. But but I think I want us to begin wrapping up. I want to ask you 
to do things that I think is very dangerous, and that is to get your crystal ball out or your your whatever you hear in the prayer closet, whatever it is, prof- get prophetic or whatever you want to mm-hmm. say. And I want to kind of look out into the not too distant future and maybe the distant future and give us a where we're headed. Because, again, I, I at times get super optimistic. Man, we've got so many tools. We've got just 10 years, 11 years in with this, with this, and look where it's at. But then I also look at the masses, uh, what they've done the last two years, and I go, oh, man, there's going to have to be some catalytic event that some major collapse, a war with China. Not any of that is too far off, by the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is going to happen. And I'll go ahead and add one more thing with it is do we need everybody to adopt or is it just a certain number of people that are adopting this, that it becomes more than it is today? I know that's throwing a lot at you, but I think that's a good (laughs) cherry on the top as we wrap up this conversation. Yeah. uh, So the future is always hard to predict and I don't claim to be a prophet, Um, but I will say that the incentives are very clear in a fiat monetary system. Um, and currently the government is very much um, playing to those incentives. They can print money whenever they want, and they are. Um, there are two bills in the in Congress right now. One's for 1.5 trillion, the other is like for 5.5 trillion. It's like an insane amount of money that's going to get printed. And of course they don't have the budget for this, but um, they can use sort of like accounting tricks, like a, a trillion dollar coin or raising the debt ceiling, uh, which is really more permission for the Fed to print more money or something like that. So it, it's a, it, there, there's the monetary incentives currently are towards more and more money printing. And this has to happen in order to sort of like keep the upper classes or the, the people that are in power you know, rich and powerful. Um, so, you know, I, I don't want to get too technical, but bond yields have to keep dropping. If they if they go up at any point, then a lot of the entire financial sector ends up collapsing because everything runs on debt. And if the bond yields are uh, if the bond interest uh, uh, bond yields are higher, then you can't like companies can't borrow more money, which means that monetary expansion contracts and that causes the economy to collapse and, uh, and whatever. So I suspect that the money printing, at least on a long-term level, will have to continue. Like, And this is kind of what happened in Europe where they're getting like really weird things like negative interest rates. I'm paying you to you know, keep my money, which is kind of weird. Uh, but but that, that sort of thing is coming. Um, and the one release valve that we have is Bitcoin, right? It's it's completely uncorrelated with every other asset. Um, and for a good reason, because you know, you, you have stocks, you 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 have bonds, they're they're all priced in the dollar. Um, and they, they are all subject to sort of like uh, the Federal Reserve's uh, sort of machination. So we, we know, for example, that the Federal Reserve bought a bunch of bonds through ETFs and so on as a way to stabilize bond prices. Um, you know, Bank of Japan, uh, which is their central bank, owns a lot of the stock market there, right? Like that that's their way of like keeping up prices. I don't think the Fed is too far away from going out and using open market operations to buy stocks to prop up their price if they crash or something like that. So there, there's a lot of, uh, you know, financial like sort of tentacles that the that that any central bank sort of has. 
it doesn't go to Bitcoin because it is guided by code. Um, so that means that, you know, given all of the monetary expansion, I, I expect sort of like continuous asset inflation. So um, specifically stocks and real estate, which are which have been pretty good stores of value. That's what people use. They're not very accessible, obviously, because if you try to buy a house in the Hamptons, you, you need like $20 million, right? Like you can't you can't just go and uh, get $5 worth of uh, a house in the Hamptons. Um, so that that means that uh, th those things will inflate, but uh, Bitcoin will continue to be this, you know, uh, external thing um, that has this fixed supply limit. Um, it's it's sort of your release valve for a lot of value, um, and that in turn means that it will have more uh, sort of like a monetary network power. Um, and you know, there there are sort of like technical economics things that we can go go into, but generally harder to produce money will win over easier to produce money. Bitcoin is very difficult to produce. Um, you know, dollar is very, very easy to produce. Um, any Anyone pretty much can by going and applying for a mortgage or even spending on your credit card. So that that's how uh, I, I see the world sort of moving. Now, your other question about Bitcoin and, uh, you know, like, being more than it is now. I, I, I think it already is a big thing for a lot of people. For those of us that are in the industry, like that's how we denominate everything. I, I do very few investments now, in large part because I know that the returns on Bitcoin are significantly higher and it has to be worthwhile for me, right? And there are very few things that are going to return like 150% per annum. Like that's you're 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 not going to get that for most assets. Uh, whereas you know, like people in the bond market are chasing like two percent yield, right? Like which is insane. Like that's like so tiny compared to what you can get in, in Bitcoin. So this changeover, I think, will will happen. Um, and I, the way I see it, it sort of like Bitcoinizes the economy. So we're we're seeing that a little bit with stuff like micro strategies. Uh, Michael Saylor is the CEO, and he's taken an enormous Bitcoin position for his company. And what that's done is it's hardened micro strategies against sort of like Federal Reserve inflation. Uh, so he knows that he can survive, right? Like his company um, and his own personal net worth and so on. Um, Tesla has some Bitcoin on its balance sheet. Um, I think that's more of a play to make sure that they don't uh, like the shorters kind of like, like get scared of it because uh, now they have two risks that you know like uh, they'll continue getting subsidization and bitcoin might go up so there, there are two ways in which they can lose uh but but regardless bitcoin is coming into the economy and it will harden a lot of things uh against collapse um i would suggest that you do the same personally um especially if you don't have that um but uh but yeah i I think that's that's where Bitcoin becomes more than it is, as more of the economy takes on sort of like a Bitcoiny character. Um, and at that point, like you know, like who's going to invest in bonds that are returning two percent when you could get, I mean, like even kind of very easy trades like a futures cash and carry trade gets you fourteen, right? Like, and that that that's very easy to execute. You just go buy the future. Uh, go sell the futures and buy Bitcoin, carry it through, and then deliver at the end. And that's 
you know, you, you've made 14% per item. Like I, I like that, that sort of thing, um, seems like it'll pop the current, uh, current economic, uh, sort of bubble that we're in. Um, and yeah, I don't know if it, if there will necessarily be a catalytic or catastrophic event that sort of, um, like causes Bitcoin to go up. Uh, but like the math is pretty clear. You have a fixed supply and increasing demand. I, I, you know, like you, the only release valve is the price of Bitcoin. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of counting on a Mad Max type scenario where everybody's in <laughs> RVs and we're crossing the country trading Bitcoin for fuel or something like that. No, I'm just not, not entirely incorrect there. So mm. Jimmy, man, I love this conversation. I love mm. so many other ways we can go, but you make such a great case in the book. Thank God for Bitcoin. Why don't we do this? Let's put a wrap on this conversation. Why don't you let people know where they could connect with you, find you. We'll include it all in the notes where they could go get the book. I'm sure it's available everywhere. That's where I got it. Uh, I finished reading it. Great read because if someone is not convinced by this conversation, they need to get the book to continue getting some of that religion. Actually, I don't mm. like religion. Some of that truth, we'll call it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jimmy, tell us where they can get you. And I've got one more question before we wrap up. Yeah. So uh, you can get me on uh, on Twitter at Jimmy Song. So that's uh, you know where you can follow me, and I, I, I put a lot of my content there. I have a newsletter, JimmySong.substack.com. That's uh, you know I, I it's called Bitcoin Tech Talk because I, I give sort of like technical updates on what's happening, but I, I do a lot of economic commentary there as well, and I I, I try to incorporate my Christianity into uh, into that newsletter. Um, I have a blog, jimmysong.medium.com. The last article that I wrote is very Christian focused uh, with regard to investing. I think the title is called um, uh, The Triumph of Postmodern Investing, um, sort of like touching on some of the ideas that we talked about. Uh, my three books are Programming Bitcoin, which is for coders, The Little Bitcoin Book, which makes a human rights case for Bitcoin. Um, and thank God for Bitcoin, which makes a moral case for Bitcoin from a Bitcoin perspective. Uh, they're all available. They're all available all over the place. Um, but Amazon is probably the easiest way to get them. Uh, I did publish with them for the last two anyway. Um, but yeah, th those are the places. But yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I, I, I'm also, I, I got so many things. I got podcasts and other stuff. But yeah, I, I think that's what I'm very good yeah we'll make sure we include all that and definitely i encourage people to check that out we're seek go create here jimmy and uh, those three words we kind of mash together you could probably guess some origins of some of those uh, mm. i like to i like to ask the guests as a final question which one of those words currently jumps out at you resonates with you more than the other two and why and that's my final question for you yeah, for me, the the clear winner is create and uh, and there's a little to uh, there's been too little of that in uh, the last hundred years or so since the advent of the Federal Reserve. And the reason I say that is because rent seeking opportunities come up whenever you have, um, you know, monetary expansion and this whole apparatus. So, uh, you know, like a lot more bureaucracy and people that don't add any value that aren't essentially creating they're they're taxing right like uh the um transactions of uh all, all sorts of people this also happened in rome you know back back in jesus's day like people like the rich, rich young ruler who who knows how much value he actually added uh, it was you know a, a lot of it was 
you know, kind of rent-seeking behavior. So um, create for me is uh, is a really good word to sort of show how we can be image bearers of God because God created things and we have that ability to make things. Um, and that that's part of what makes us human uh, versus an animal, right? Like animals go eat and do stuff and they grow and things like that, but they don't create. We have the ability um, to put our ideas into products or goods or services. And, and for me, that's at the heart of what uh, Christian living really should be. I, I had a tweet earlier about how you know, loving your fellow man, right? Loving others as yourself is really about providing goods and services uh, to others, uh, you know, for a fair price. You know, God doesn't want like unfair exchange, you know, like the whole just weights and balances is all about that. It's, he wants fair exchanges. And if you can provide something that is fair to the market, I, I believe that you are loving others as you would have them love you right like uh, and that's that's uh part of my favorite verse um in uh from ephesians uh he who steals must steal no longer but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need and you know that's ephesians 4 27 or 28 i can't remember but um uh, but the idea of that verse, uh, for most people, they're thinking, okay, well, share with one who has need. Uh, okay, that means like giving alms or charity or something like that. For me, no, that's not what it's talking about at all. Because if you look at the context, it's about stealing versus working with your hands. It is about uh, instead of stealing, which I see as like rent seeking or doing, you know, like sort of bureaucratic nonsense work or something like that, versus working with your hands, right? Like creating something that is how you love others right like that is how you provide other people with what they need it, it is producing a good or service to the market and i believe that is sort of like god's view of work god's view of what we're supposed to do um, is ultimately creating something that others can use and um and that's how we contribute to to his creation and we get to be partakers in that. Isn't that wonderful? That's that's what stands out to me. That's beautiful. Create. And I love that. Add value and give honor. So, Jimmy, thank you so much. This has been so valuable. Hopefully next time we talk, maybe it'll be me, you, Francis Chan. We'll kind of come together and have a big powwow. That'll be awesome. I recommend highly that you get the book. Thank God for Bitcoin. If you're just getting and dipping your toes into this, get that book. And I want to ask one more big favor of you. I know we've kind of gone long here, but this is a message that people need to be here. They need to hear this. So share this. If you've listened to it on social media, if it's been on the podcast, take a screenshot, share it. Get some other people that listen to this. That would be great. I know for Jimmy's message, he's got a message to share. It'd be great for the podcast, everything. So uh, thank you for sharing. And remember, we've got new episodes every Monday. And until next time, continue being all that you were created to be.